I am not just saying this because I'm a priest. I am not just saying this because I'm a priest. I have a hard time understanding why somebody would not want Christianity to be true. I have a hard time understanding why somebody would not want Christianity to be true. There is a huge difference between I don't believe it's true and there's a difference between I don't want it to be true. Someone's saying, I don't believe it's true. I get it. Maybe they haven't had an experience yet. Maybe they haven't read the right thing. Maybe they, they need to have a certain type of conversation. That's one thing. That I don't want it to, or I say, I don't believe it's true. Maybe they just haven't had that right encounter, that right book, that right conversation, that right relationship. Maybe that hasn't come yet. But that's completely different than someone saying, I don't want it to be true. There is something so irresistible in the first century that made Christianity so attractive, so appealing, so irresistible. It completely transformed how governments were run, how philosophy was, was approached. It com completely changed society in the first century. It drove philosophy, it drove so many things because of Jesus. And this is what made it so appealing and so attractive to such a wide array of people in the first century. But there was one certain word that, that captured the irresistibility. I don't even know if that's a word, but there's a, is that a word? Irresistibility? Let's make it a word. There was something about early Christianity that was so irresistible, but it was all rotated around this one word in the first century. And that word is grace. It's hard to capture. Like, I'll tell you the truth growing up. Like, grace was a very churchy word, but it's just like a nice thing to say, but I really didn't even understand it, really. Like, I, I remember, I've only been to Egypt twice, but I remember, like, when I went with my, with my father-in-law, like, he, people would be, like, walking next to him, and they would say, like, in Arabic, I'm not going to even say it because like, you're going to laugh, but they would say, like, peace and grace, and I would find out later that's what that meant. But it was just a word you would just say. Like, you, like you, just, you, you just say peace and grace, and, like, and it was just, it seems like a very churchy word. And I see it in a lot of things growing up, but I fully didn't understand what the word grace is. And actually the songs today, I don't know if that was just coincidence, but those songs captured it beautifully. You guys leading us talking or singing about grace. Grace is what we crave the most when our guilt is exposed. Grace is what we crave the most when our guilt is exposed. We're very hesitant to extend it to someone. But there's a lot of times where we're in desperate need of grace ourselves. It's super hard to give it out. But there are times in our life when we need grace ourselves. I got caught with this in my room. I got caught looking at this. I, whatever. I need grace myself. But somebody did something to me. And I'm not giving grace to you. You need justice. You deserve what you get. But grace, we've been in so many situations in our life where we need grace ourselves. We get in trouble for something. You know, we know we did something wrong and we need some grace to come our way. It's, we're in desperate need of wanting it, but it is super hard to give it out. Why is this new series that we are starting today, this three-part series called Immeasurable, called Immeasurable? The beautiful thing, one of the beautiful things of our ancient faith is that we approach God in such a wide array and such a diverse way for us to build that relationship. Yes, there is individual personal prayer. There's communal prayer. There's physical prayer. There's physical prayer of this. There's silence. And then there's also inaudible prayers 
which your prayer is kind of said in the heart. And the priest, in any time there is any type of liturgical service, which is an ancient form of worship that Jesus clearly stated for us in the first century, that as, the, this, after, as this, the evolution of the liturgy came into play over the centuries, there became inaudible prayers became a staple in, in, in church services, where the priest would be praying a lot of inaudible prayers to himself. And one of the words that stuck out to me is a prayer that the priest prays right before the reading of uh, the, the, the Catholic epistle. So for those who don't know, there is a part of the liturgy where we read various things from Scripture, where there might be a selection from a, a, a letter written by, from St. Paul, which was a missionary in the first century, and there might be something from another early uh, Christian writer, another epistle coming from the New Testament. And right before that's read, the priest says an inaudible prayer, and I'm paraphrasing, but the priest, the priest prays, God, just as you empowered the apostles, give us your immeasurable grace. And it kind of stuck out to me, like, you can use any other word to describe grace. You can say amazing grace, for crying out loud. But the church is saying, describing grace as being immeasurable. Throughout ancient Christianity, and even till now, 2,000 years later, a staple in Orthodox worship and in Orthodox prayer is something called apophatic theology. I mentioned this before, but I want to, to highlight this. Apophatic theology is, is describing God by describing what He is not. Describing God by describing what he is not. If, if I would say that God is incomprehensible, I am saying he is above human logic. If I'm saying that God is ineffable, I'm saying there's no words that I'm able to articulate to verbalize who this eternal being is. And this is why we use words of describing God as being the being or even eternal. We say God being the great or the eternal. You cannot quantify the word great. You cannot quantify the word eternal. This is why in our pre-denominational pre faith, we take serious these words because it forces us to not limit God, saying, oh, God is this, God is that, or, or, or did God work like this because I did this? We love to put God in a little box, but the church is trying to push us to say, this being who's outside of the dimension of time that you're aware of is immeasurable, and his grace is immeasurable. It forces me to, to, to say, I'm, I'm here, I'm limited. But the, the one I'm trying to pursue, the one I'm trying to, to get the fullness of life from is immeasurable, is unlimited. I'm limited, but he's unlimited. And the beautiful thing of why Christianity is so attractive is that the unlimited took on the form of limited in order for us to come back to being unlimited. It's refreshing to receive it. Grace, oh. Thank God, I didn't get in trouble this time. Or think, like, grace is the best, especially when you get a speeding ticket. It's refreshing, like when you're in the court, I should say, and they, you know, they pass over. It's refreshing to receive it, but it is very disturbing to give it. It's very disturbing to give it. So it's hard to bring down the definition of the word grace. It's better for me to, to, to draw pictures, but let's stick with this definition for right now. Grace is a manifestation of undeserved favor manifestation of undeserved favor the funny thing about grace is you cannot expect it you cannot expect it this is equivalent of like me saying hey i'm gonna plan my surprise birthday party i can't plan my the second i say i'm gonna plan my surprise birthday party it's not a surprise birthday party anymore so the second i say yeah i deserve grace you're not getting grace like this so it's kind of weird 
it's you receive it by not expecting it the same way of how i cannot plan my own surprise birthday party the second i do that it's not a surprise birthday party anymore where you can see the manifestation of grace is when there is a relationship it's by the way this is only experienced in relationships grace is only it's, it's a relational experience but it can only be experienced when there is an imbalance in the relationship it can only be experienced when there's a relation uh, imbalance like i did something wrong i screwed up i know i shouldn't have done that somebody has to extend grace to the other there is a person who manifested grace in such a crystal clear tangible fleshy way and he comes from the city of nazareth and his name is jesus we cannot understand the grace of god without the second person of god we cannot understand the grace of god without the second person of god ancient christianity describes god being in three persons and we have that from the dawn of of of, of humankind where god says let us make man we have always understood god being plural that there is god the father there is god the son and god the holy spirit and why god wanted to make it extremely clear who he is this is why the second person came which is jesus if you notice at the end of any ancient uh christian uh, prayer any liturgical prayer in our coptic tradition the priest always says he, he says okay great, have a great day guys he doesn't say that he says okay we're not done with liturgy he doesn't say that he empowers us through god but it's not coming from the priest but the church is empowering us by saying go be a light be an impact be a light in the darkness in the world that the church empowers us by saying now may the love of god the father the grace of his son and the communion and gift of the third person of god the holy spirit be with you that we're empowered by the three persons of god who are of one essence 2,000 years ago, when Jesus surrounded himself with very, not I want to say immature, but amateur men, 12 ordinary men, who were curious to find more out of life. One of them was named St. John, or then he wasn't a saint, but he was John. And he was an ordinary young man, and he was curious of Jesus. And he is, why I speak so much of John, because he has such a unique perspective of being extremely close to Jesus. And he is the one who wrote one of the four gospels. We have four records of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he wrote the fourth record of what we have of Jesus' life, which we know today, which we call today as being the gospel. He also wrote three other uh, letters uh, to early Christians within the first century. Uh, and he had very attractive and, and really catchy titles for, his, for those three books, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And, and he wrote this um, when he, at near the end of his life, when you know, his eyesight was kind of getting bad and near the end, a lot of his friends were saying, John, hey, like, things are not looking great for you. I mean, we don't know when the end is gonna come. You need to write down everything you experienced 50 years ago with Jesus from Nazareth. Like, I know it rocked your life. We are pursuing Jesus, but like you, were, like, you, were, like, you like, hung out with him all the time. Like you need to articulate and write down your experience before you kind of peace out so saint john ended up writing down his experience and, and, and when he sat by himself to describe this eternal immeasurable being god taking on flesh he described it with these words 
the word. Like he's using Greek philosophy now because he's trying to, to find the word to describe it, which, which would be Jesus. Jesus became flesh, or God became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from God the Father, full of grace and truth. Sometimes we extend grace to our kids or to our spouse. Sometimes we want to give truth. We try to find the balance of how we, how we can do grace. Sometimes we need to do truth. But the thing that rocked philosophy and rocked the first, the first century world is that now there is an embodiment of someone being 100% grace and 100% truth. Like this has never been seen before and it made people feel uncomfortable but it also made other people very curious of who Jesus is because he embodied 100% of grace and 100% of truth and not just the balance of the two. Jesus, the beautiful thing of what Jesus did, Jesus never diluted truth or turned down grace. He somehow was able to give 100% of truth all the time and give it. When there was a sinner, he said this is a sinner. When he said he did something wrong, he gave it. But at the same time, he extended unbelievable, immeasurable amount of grace without compromising one for the other. And this is what transformed so much of the first century society. There was a very uncomfortable situation that a few early disciples saw that Jesus did that made them super, felt very awkward and very uncomfortable. When Jesus was, was recruiting early disciples or people to follow him, he saw a guy that, like, not everyone liked in society. Like, maybe it's hard for us when we think of a tax collector. We think it's like a churchy thing, but we don't fully under embrace. Being a tax collector, man, like, you're, like, no one wants to talk to you. You make a living by stealing from people. No one likes you. And then Jesus came to a man named Levi, which we know as Matthew, and Jesus told him, follow me. Peter and some of the other early disciples were like, whoa, okay, I mean, it's been cool up to now, but man, you can, like, you've crossed the border now, Jesus. Now you're saying, now you want a tax collector to hang out with us? It's kind of awkward now because, like, he hangs out with, like, different people and, like, they're kind of like thugs and I, I, don't, I don't know if this is such a good idea, Jesus. We've been good up to now. You've been, you've been getting decent guys, but now you're getting a tax collector? Then Jesus says, hey, Matthew, do you mind telling some of your friends, do you mind texting some of your friends and tell them to come to your house? Let's have a house party in a few hours at your place. At this point, the other disciples were like, whoa, I don't, do we keep on following Jesus? Do we go to this house party or not? Like now we're going to a party full of tax collectors, man. We don't, we don't mesh with them. Like what are we, like, we can't even small talk with them. Like we don't, we don't jive together. Like I don't know if this is such a good idea. So they get to Matthew's house. And they're having this house party. And I can just imagine, you know, here's Peter and, you know, a couple of disciples here that are following Jesus. And they're like, I don't know. And then on this side, you have, you know, Matthew and some other tax collectors and Jesus in the middle. And he's trying to lighten the mood and for everyone to kind of talk together. But there's like this awkward tension in the room. To give you an idea of this awkward tension that's in the room. This might be equivalent, maybe for you to understand this. Imagine you go to a wedding reception, and you know, they're dancing, and maybe there's a type of dance that begins with the word belly involved, and, and then I walk in the door. And, you know, I've been in that situation, not, not, when, not as a priest, but 
where everyone's like, okay, like, do we dance? Like, is a priest here? Like, do we, what, do, then we ask, hey, do you know when he's leaving? Because you want to ask <laughs> when he'll start. But there's this awkward tension in the room. Because, like, you know, people wanting to dance, but the priest is there. Do we not? Do we know? Do you know when he's leaving? Did he eat yet? And all this kind of stuff. But this was the awkward tension that existed at this house party between Jesus being there with sinners. Everyone was there a sinner, but, but real sinners looking at Matthew and his friends. Like, Matthew invited other friends that were just like him. And on the other side, you have some decent Jewish men that are wanting to pursue Jesus. And Jesus is sitting there in the middle, like trying to make the two get along at this house party. This house party was extremely unsettling. This is what grace feels like. It's unsettling. I don't deserve it. It's the best feeling. But there's something like, do I deserve this? And this is a gift from God. There's something that makes me feel a little bit unsettled about this. This is immeasurable grace. Right outside this house party, there are some hardcore Jewish lawmakers, the Pharisees and the scribes, and they're standing outside the door, and they're seeing this hotshot Jewish guy hanging out with, with tax collectors and some other Jewish men, and he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is, this is against law 2B. You're not supposed to be doing this. And so they come knocking on the door. And so probably one of the Jewish guys opens the door and says, hey, how's it going, Pharisees? May I help you? When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples. They open the door and then they ask, why does your teacher, why does Jesus, the guy over there in the, in the middle of the living room at the house party, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he eating with sinful people? Like he's supposed to be a, like a, you know, a respectful Jewish man in society. Why is he eating with, ta with, with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus hearing this from the door, he's hearing this in the living room, and he says, Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Imagine, imagine, Matthew is sitting there. He's hearing Jesus say, hey, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's for the sick. This is why I'm here. I'm here for the sick. And Matthew's like, dude, you came into my house. You asked for a house party and you come into my house and you calling me sick. <laughs> I'm sure Matthew's like, you know, let's call this party over. Jesus never ran away from truth. Sin is sin. Truth is truth. But grace is grace. And he manifested both in such a beautiful way. He had a great time had a great dinner party with Matthew and his friends talking about whatever. But when there's a time where, where Jesus said, hey, like, I love you. I want us to be best friends, but you're sick. And that's why I'm here. Don't run away from that. And I can't water that down, but I got to call you out. There was an early Christian from Northern Italy. I just learned this this week. From, and his name is Saint Chromatius, Chromatius, from the year 350. And he said this, Christ entered through Matthew's faith by his grace. Christ entered into Matthew's, into Matthew's life by grace, by, by Jesus extending grace. 
Matthew's house is the church, compromising of sinners and not sinners. Oh, sorry, uh, publicans and sinners. Matthew's house is the church, compromising of publicans and sinners. This, this Italian early Christian father, is, he, he had a beautiful meditation. As he's reading this manuscript, he's saying, this is the church where Jesus is at this house party, and there are such a wide array of different people. They're super sinners. They're people trying to find out who Jesus is. This is the definition of a hospital. St. Chromatius is saying, this is what a church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be filled with such a wide array of people trying to find the fullness of life. There's some people that are way from one, like, that, that, that have no interest in God, and there's some that are wanting to get more out of life. But this is supposed to be what the hospital is. This is what the church is supposed to be. This is his meditation of what, of what he wrote down as he read this awkward house party that Jesus had with, with Matthew and his friends. In the first century, religious leaders and politicians could not stand there being an idea of grace and truth being together 100 percent together they could they could not they could not fathom and they could not like capture that to the point they said when they saw the person who was 100 percent truth and 100 percent grace he says we got to get him out of here we got to get him out of here saint luke who wrote who had thorough investigation as he wrote down the gospel of jesus life records the last hours of Jesus' life. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, like this is Jesus on the cross. They said, he saved others, let him save himself. If he really is God, if he really is the chosen one, let him save himself. If he really, what he says he is, he can save himself. He doesn't have to suffer on the cross. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you, aren't, aren't you the guy that we've been knowing from our Torah? You save yourself. Since you really are God, since you really are the Messiah, you save yourself. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? Don't you have any reverence to God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. Listen, we did something wrong our entire life, and we've been trying to run away from the law. We got caught. We deserve this. We deserve this. We can't run away from it. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, Jesus, this guy from Nazareth, he hasn't done anything wrong. We did something wrong. Let's face it, man. Let's stop trying to come up with excuses. We've been living a thug life, a criminal life for a whole life. This, I mean, we knew there was a chance of this happening. And we took our chances. Now this is the end. Let's embrace it. We still need to have a reverence for God, but we deserve this. Let's not run away from it. But this guy in the middle, Jesus, he doesn't deserve it. Then he said, Jesus, remember me. I know where you're going. I sense that you are God. I, I, I see you're human and I see weakness, but actually I see strength. I see weakness, but I know I see God with skin on him. I see power. I see majesty. I see honor. I see glory. So where you're about to go, remember me. Remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me. And I'm sure the thief was like, That's the problem. I'm with you right here, right now. And Jesus said, You will be with me in paradise.
we know from other manuscripts outside of the Bible that this man was named Demas, D-E-M-A-S. Did he, how is this truth? How is this grace? Like life, grace is unfair. Like life, grace is unfair. Wait, time out. So you're saying, Father Nathaniel, that, you know, there shouldn't be justice, there shouldn't be fairness, there shouldn't be consequences for our sin. Like, shouldn't, he, like there's consequences for the mistakes that we make, right? So you're saying all that's out the door and we should just give grace and truth to everyone and, and consequences are, are outside, the, are out, out the door, out of the picture? Jesus understood, and we understand this, that sin is always prepackaged with consequences. Sin is always prepackaged with consequences. What makes a sin a sin is because it's, it's, it's driving us away from of how we were designed to live. And there's naturally going to be consequences. When I decide to look at this, when I decide to act this way, when I decide to behave this way, I'm, I'm, there's going, that, that, that decision is already prepackaged with consequences. That's already there. But this is why God said, I cannot see them continuing to take this, this road and to act like this and to behave like this. And then they realize the consequences that they have to deal with and it's destroying their life, destroying their career, destroying their marriage. But they don't understand that their decisions are prepackaged with consequences. I cannot see them myself anymore. I have to come and embody myself by giving the truth, but also giving 100% grace. I can't see them be living with their consequences anymore. Yes, there are consequences to our decision. We can't run away from that. We tried to avoid that. We tried to, to hide things and, 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 and deceive others and to cover up things. But our weaknesses, our struggles, maybe things that only I know about, there are con by divine design of how this world is created by God, there are consequences to my mistake. There's consequences to my sins. But Jesus came and says, I'm, I'm trying to rescue you from all of that. But, but you just have to shoot out a word, say, <clears throat> I, I need to hold on to hope. This, this is what Damas said, the thief. He said, I don't, I don't know a lot of things, but I see hope. I see light in this person next to me on this cross. And I want to hold on to that to give me new life. I know it's the end. And I know I only got 30 minutes left of life. But you know what? I know this person next to me is outside of time. And I see in him the embodiment of grace, which I can't understand. Just remember me when you come into your kingdom. And this man, Damas, is living the best life in eternity with, with, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and all the saints and martyrs and patriarchs. And you're saying this thief is sitting next to all these guys? Yeah. Why? Because of God's immeasurable grace. Like I mentioned, the centerpiece of ancient Christianity worship centers around celebrating the Eucharist, which is our divine liturgy, which Jesus established on Thursday night before his crucifixion. And in the Coptic Orthodox tradition, as we celebrate the Eucharist, there's always a part near the end called the fraction. And the fraction varies. It can change just randomly, or it can change depending on the season of what we are celebrating. So there are a lot of ones that can be used for any occasion. And there's a fraction that we pray today and we'll continue to pray over the next couple of weeks because I love the words of it so much. This is what we pray today. Your love has brought you down. 
God, your love has brought you down. That's Jesus. Your love has brought you down to our lowliness. Let your grace raise us up to your highness. Isn't that beautiful? Your love has brought you down to our lowliness. Let your grace raise us up to our highness, to, you, to, to your highness. Let your love, your love has brought us down. Your love has brought you down to our lowliness. Let your grace raise us up to your highness. If we understand the grace of his only begotten son, if we understand the grace of Jesus, of how we don't deserve it, but it's the best refreshing feeling to get, if we understand that, then I promise you, when we extend that with the conflicts and the issues and the problems that we have, when someone does something wrong to us, when we extend that, this is why I feel this can solve our problems. When we fully embrace what grace is, as that completely rocked the first century world, it can completely transform our lives as well. Let's stand up for a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. God, I am the first one, which I don't even understand how grace works. And I know it's confusing of how you embodied truth and grace at, at Matthew's house and, and, and of how you were clear to him with your grace and how you were clear to him with calling sin, sin, that transformed his life and his life was never the same. And he became a pillar for Christianity. Lord, we all make mistakes and we're all in need of grace at some point. But give us clarity to embrace and understand what grace is and for us to extend that to others just as we need grace when we make mistakes. Through the prayers of St. Matthew and all your saints, Lord, hear us as we pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, in Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.